participate in these child dedications. They're a reminder to me as a dad, the commitment that I've made to my kids, and also to all the kids in this church as a member of this church. So it's always a sweet time to do that. Um, we're going to pivot over to our text this morning, and it is kind of wild. Uh, Daniel 8 is a bit out there for us as 21st century Christian Americans, but I believe together we can glean what God is trying to say here and to uh, grow in our faith uh, this morning. So would you open up to Daniel 8? This is a prophecy, a vision that God gives Daniel. Um, We're going to read it together, and then we will spend time learning together. Would you stand, if you're able to, for the reading of God's word? This is Daniel 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. 
But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, would you help us these next few moments that you would reveal to us more about who you are through this text. Enlighten our hearts. Open up our hearts and minds to receive, God, your word truthfully, faithfully, um, accurately. And may we not Leave this place unchanged, but change us, God, more into your likeness. May we grow in our faith in you, our faithful God. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So in the last few months, um, my wife and I, we decided that we were going to renovate our back porch. Uh, This is what it looked like. Uh, before we bought it. Uh, I am really bad about taking before and after photos, so I pulled this from Zillow. This is the last sellers. This is what it looked like. Um, but uh, we decided we we're going to enclose it and add an additional room to our house. <clears throat> I put my plans together. I got my permit. I even have found a handyman who's going to help me kind of move this project along. But I decided I was going to start the demolition and save some money and not pay somebody else to do that, but I, I would pull off the siding and the trim and, and all that. Um, but when I started to pull off the trim and the siding, this is what I started to discover. That is termite damage. Now, um, the sellers told us before we bought it about seven years ago that there had been termite activity at this part of the house, that they had treated it, that there were no longer termites, um, and uh, that all was well. We had inspections, there were no termites. We've not had any termites since. Uh, but, as you can see, there was some leftover damage that was un, uh, unaccounted for, so to speak. Um, so I knew what to expect, right? It was disclosed when we bought the house, but as some of you know, when you find termite damage, you should expect this to be kind of the tip of the iceberg. So this is what more of it looked like. So it just comes apart like paper. You can see all that wood on the ground. 
Um, and the beam, is there one other, there may be one other of the, yep, well, you reveal, spoilers. So that was my fault. So as I was demoing, the ceiling started to flex. And um, at that point, I stopped the demo, I called the handyman, and I said, hey, I, I'm gonna have you do this. Uh, I don't feel comfortable doing this. And we kind of just, I kind of let it be, and he was gonna come two weeks later. Just this past Wednesday, as I was brushing my teeth, I heard some cracking and some booms. And uh, this is what I saw, that picture right there. Uh, that's right, our ceiling caved in. And uh, Rochelle and the kids were out of town. They were up in Georgia visiting family. Plus, this is kind of a no-go zone for my kids. So thankfully, nobody was there when it happened. So this project has kind of gone from bad to worse, right? You can take the picture away, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but I am not too disheartened. I'm not, I'm not. You might ask why. Because on, on some level, I expected this. I expected to encounter these problems because of the history of the home. But also, I have a plan. I will put it all back together and actually, it's gonna be in better condition than it was before because there's not gonna be pieces of paper holding up the framing of my house anymore, even though I couldn't see it, right? That was what was behind that wall was just basically shreds of paper. And the ceiling will actually have something to hold on to, so that'll be good. And then hopefully in the meantime, rodents aren't gonna take up residence in our crawl space. So this series of events with my back porch, it had me thinking about how God often uses suffering, whether it's relatively small things like home renovation problems, or much bigger tragedies, how he uses suffering to reveal the messiness actually within us and how often the suffering can often feel like it's compounding on itself. But how ultimately, at least in my experience, God uses the suffering of his children to build us back up into people who are more like Jesus, more, actually more fully human. The people of Israel have been in exile and Daniel and his friends have encountered a lot of what I would expect to be unforeseen hardship. I mean, they knew that they were going to be in captivity, but all the events that have happened while they've been there, I'm sure they didn't foresee those things. And here, we are in chapter 8, where while in exile, Daniel is given a vision of some more suffering that's going to be coming to the people of Israel. But this chapter helps us in our understanding of how God works in and through hardship and how he is working actually in and through history. So the, the main point this morning is really this, that because God knows the future and has promised us restoration, we can live with certain hope even when times feel hopeless. Let me say that again. Because God knows the future and he has promised us restoration, we can live with certain hope even when times feel hopeless. So we're going to look at that in kind of two parts this morning. The first part is this. Calamity will come. Secondly, God will restore. Let's look at that first point. Calamity will come. For context, we find ourselves two years after Daniel's uh, previous vision in chapter 7 with the four beasts, and we find ourselves kind of closing in on the end of Israel's 70-year captivity in Babylon. This is possibly 60-plus years have passed since Daniel was taken into Babylon. He's no longer the, the teenage Wunderkind. 
that we see in the first couple chapters. He's now an older man, likely in his 80s, and God is still using him to care for his people, uh, in, uh, the people of Israel. This vision that we read is uh, a message. It's a message of warning. It's a, a divine heads up from God to his people. And to clarify, the events here are not events tied with the end of all things, with Christ's second coming, as in Revelation, but it's tied to events that happened in the history of God's people, in Israel's history. So we're going to look at that. But for time, we're going to look at both the vision and the interpretation, which are split up in this chapter. We're going to look at both of those at the same time. And we're also going to observe how it's connected to, to world history. And this will require a bit of a history lesson, so bear with me. And what we're going to walk through um, just is, is the general consensus of scholars concerning this vision and uh, world events. So in the vision, Daniel finds himself in the city of Susa. That's the, the capital of Persia. It's about 255 miles away from Babylon, where he is. He finds himself in this vision there on the banks of this canal called the Ulai. He sees a ram. Verse 20 tells us that this ram with two horns represents the empires of Medea and Persia. That this ram is powerful and seemingly unstoppable. And I'll make a, a quick note. I, I can't recall if we've note, noted this in the series or not, but horns often in apocalyptic literature here denote kings and kingdoms. So you're going to read, you're going to hear a lot about horns. That What we're talking about here are kings and kingdoms. And so we have this powerful, seemingly unstoppable ram with these two horns representing the kingdoms of Medea and Persia. Daniel then sees a goat with a single horn representing Greece, explained in verse 21. And this goat moves so fast that it doesn't even touch the ground, and it plows right into this ram. World history reveals that this large horn uh, is Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world with ferocious speed, seizing land and peoples from Greece all the way to northern India in about the span of 10 years. It's very, very fast. And this was from age 20 to age 30, and this was how he spent his 20s. That's not how I spent my 20s. In 323 BC, Alexander the Great died of an illness, possibly malaria or typhoid fever, we're not sure. And his kingdom and his conquest came to an end. And over the span of about 20 years, that large horn on the goat split into four horns, which represented these four generals of Alexander's army that segmented his kingdom. So Cassander over Macedonia and Greece, uh, Lysimachus over Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus over Syria and Mesopotamia, and Ptolemy in Egypt. I wish I had a map for you. I would, I would have shown you all that. But suffice it to say, all of those areas basically surround Israel. Um, these four smaller kingdoms span about 200 years of history, and Scripture tells us that they did not have the power that the previous empire had before it. But we then find in the vision, one of the four horns, a little horn grows and becomes exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, as it says. The glorious land being Israel. This little horn grows, and uh, Gabriel is ex in explaining the vision. He explains that this little horn, starting in verse 23, is a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, 
His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but not by no human hand. This horn is likely Antiochus IV. After the death of Alexander the Great, Judah came under Egyptian control by Ptolemy for about 100 years. That changed in 198 BC when Antiochus III, he uh, uh, destroyed the Egyptians in, in battle and Palestine came under Seleucid control. So that, that uh, empire, the Seleucid Empire, which predominantly controlled Asia Minor. Antiochus III, he was the sixth ruler of the Seleucid Empire. He was defeated by the Romans in 190 and then died shortly thereafter. And then by 175, there's lots of numbers, Antiochus IV, as one commentator describes it, wormed his way into power. Antiochus IV named himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes meaning God manifest. And he's referring to his, the God he worshipped, which was Zeus, that he was God manifest. However, some considered a more fitting name for him to be Antiochus Epimenes, that is, Antiochus the Madman. He reigned from 175 to 164, and during his time, he sought to completely, what we call, Hellenize Israel, to make it like uh, the Greek in, uh, practices and, and uh, cultural practices, to get rid of anything that basically was Jewish. Antiochus essentially forced a systematic program onto Israel in which he would eradicate completely any trace of Israel's faith and worship practices. And it's difficult to emphasize just how extreme this oppression was. One commentator, uh, he writes this, he says, the, the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes is one of the most important events in the history of God's people. Ranking on the level with the call of Abraham, the giving of the law, the captivity, and the incarnation. Antiochus instituted the deadliest peril the church has ever confronted. He ordered the cessation of circumcision, stopped the services of the temple, instituted pagan worship instead. He set up idol altars in every city. And then, uh, this isn't in the quote, but not to mention he erected a statue of Zeus in God's holy temple. He demanded every Jew should sacrifice in line with the pagan ritual and commanded the holy writings to be destroyed. Those refusing conformity were ruthlessly slaughtered, whole families were exterminated for the guilt of one of their number, and the chosen people were on the point of annihilation. And by his, this commentator's estimation, he says, there never was, before or since, such a period of desperation or despondency in the history of the church. And it's at that level of extreme emergency that seems to be reason for such a detailed vision to be given to Daniel. This was the little horn that grew great and caused much destruction for God's people, this Antiochus IV. So why does God give Daniel this vision hundreds of years before these events take place? Because Daniel, this is about 550 BC. All of this, as you remember, is about 175 to 164 BC, hundreds of years later. 
In verse 26, Daniel is told to seal up this vision and to keep it for his people. This is God's way of preparing his people. He was forearming them for what was going to come. And a small side note, Daniel understands the terms of, it, of their exile, that one day they will be back in their glorious land, as the chapter describes it. And this vision gives them an assurance that they will actually be back in their land. But it's sobering because despite that, trouble will still come. And I think this is a gentle reminder that the hope of Israel is not in a place. It's in a person, in the God who created both them and the land that they call their home. Second, I believe this prophecy was given so as to encourage the people of Israel who were, who were oppressed by Antiochus in the second century. It showed them that their suffering was not unexpected by God and that God would fix it. It gave them hope that God would eventually end the suffering and make things right again. And then third, it gives us an example of God's real knowledge and uh, intervention in human history. Just like the people of Israel, we too have been given a heads up about what is to come. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 24, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says, see that you are not alarmed. We are not to be surprised when we hear of wars or famines or natural disasters. These are just the beginning of the end. They are not the end itself. But we are to be prepared for them, knowing that our sovereign king has it all under control. There's nothing out of God's control. And indeed, he uses it all for our good and for his glory. And then Jesus ends this passage saying, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The point of Daniel 8 and, and here in Matthew 24 is to help God's people to endure. If we know what to expect, we can better weather the storm, storm, so to speak. This truth is meant to comfort us both at the micro level when we find termite damage and our ceiling caves in and, our, uh, and at the macro level when we experience significant tragedies or persecution or we see civil unrest or wars or other calamities going on around us, it's meant to comfort us. But do you find yourself anxious about the future? It's a question we should ask ourselves. Whether that's your personal future or the future of our country or our world, Daniel 8 reminds us none of this is a surprise to God. And even he has given us some glimpses into what is to happen so that we would not be anxious, but rather prepared. But God would not be God if he simply gave us a heads up and could do nothing about it. No, he is fully capable and intends to make all things right. Which brings us to our second point. 
God will restore. The promise of restoration is stated during the conversation between the holy ones. Verses, in verse 13, the holy one asks the other, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, there are a couple different interpretations of what this 2,300 evenings and mornings mean. It could either be 2,300 days, or it could be 2,300 sacrifices, because they would have one in the evening and, evening and morning, meaning 1,150 days. But the exact moment of restoration is less the point, and more of the point is that there is a defined end to the suffering and an appointed restoration. And that restoration, that restoration, the timing and the events, they're all designed by God and in his hands. And as a 21st century Christian living in the United States, it can be hard to feel connected to an event that happened to an ancient people, people we never knew in a part of the world that most of us have probably never been, and certainly in a period of history so far removed from ours. But there are a few reasons why this vision matters. This text helps us to understand that God really and truly acts in history. God said these events would happen. He said he would take care of it. The events did happen, and he, in fact, took care of it. Something seemingly so straightforward and simple cannot be overlooked, shouldn't be overlooked. God keeps his word. He acts in accordance with his word, and nothing comes to pass without his allowing it or his causing it. Because God really and truly acts, though, in history, we can have hope for the day when not just a temple and worship practices are restored, but for the day when he will restore all things. What the vision in Daniel 8 was for the people of Israel, the book of Revelation is for us. We have a future hope that Jesus Christ, the one by whom we can be restored to a right relationship with God, will return and, com and complete God's work of restoration. Just like Daniel, we can see the calamity that is coming, but we can also see how God will be there to finally and completely restore the world to its rightful state. The prophecy of Daniel 8, along with its fulfillment, should encourage our faith that God is a God who does what he says. And while we don't know when the events of Revelation will occur, we can be sure that God will keep his word. He has done it in the past, every single time, and he will do it again in the future. We sang, great is thy faithfulness. He will do it, in, he has done it in the past, he will do it in the future. A couple weeks back, um, Rochelle and the kids and I went to Washington, D.C. for our kind of family vacation time to visit some friends and to do some sightseeing for the week. And our friends, who actually um, used to be a part of City Church before they moved, Ben and Leslie, um, some of you may know them, they live about 30 to 45 minutes outside of the Capitol. We got to spend some time with them, but when they were working during the week, we would take day trips into the city. 
So each day we would wake up, we would eat breakfast, we'd pack lunches for everyone, and then we would head into the city for the day. And each day, it took about the same amount of time, both to get into the city and then later to get back to Ben and Leslie's. But without fail, one or multiple of my children would ask the question, when are we going to get there? And with five kids, that question is going to be asked a lot in a 30-minute car ride. Often because as one kid asks, the others, of course, aren't listening. They're coloring or reading or looking out the window or talking to one another. So then within a minute or two later, another kid thinks to ask and so on and so forth. So at some point, I have to get everyone's attention, give them that dad look through the rearview mirror and say something to the effect of, we will get there when we get there which is probably the most confusing and cryptic answer to a child. <laughs> I could have just repeated the estimated time of arrival that Google Maps provided, but that wouldn't help because the core problem is not a lack of knowledge, it's patience. I want my kids to be content in the moment, in the waiting, and to trust that I will get them to their destination safely and at the time that we need to be there. Aren't we often like children in that regard? We know where we are going, but we don't know when we will get there. And, the things, and things can often get difficult, and we can ask, how long, O oh Lord? And sometimes the question can come from impatience, but it can also come from emotional exhaustion, or can come from a heartfelt pleading before the Lord when it is so difficult to move forward, and it is more than right to ask the question. But we always must remember that God is in control, that he is taking us somewhere wonderful, and that we will get there when we get there. Daniel, at the end of the chapter, after all that he has experienced, continues with the work that he is responsible for. No doubt, he was laid up for a few days after such a distressing vision. That seems completely understandable. But he didn't give up and just quit. He continued to do the work God had given him, knowing that he didn't know when any of the events of this vision would be fulfilled, but trusting that God was in control. Even if we don't know the when, we can look with anticipation and joy, even if mixed with some level of questioning and confusion because we're trusting that God will do what he says and will do it in the time that he deems best. And it's in trusting him with that that can help us weather the present difficulties of life, knowing that God will keep his word. Some of you may be familiar with um, pastor theologian John Piper. He served for many, many years as a pastor in Minnesota, written many books, spoken, uh, had a long, fruitful kind of preaching ministry, a lesser-known fact, uh, at least I think it is, about him is that he is also a poet. Um, if you go to his website for his ministry, Desiring God, you can find much of his poetry. And a few years ago, I discovered he had written an epic poem, epic being the genre, poem, uh, based on the book of Job. I don't know if there is a better example in Scripture um, the book of Job. I don't think there's a better example in Scripture of God's work through suffering than the book of Job. So just side note, if you haven't read it, 
It's a book that explores themes of God's wisdom, suffering and divine justice, maintaining faith while experiencing suffering among others. So John Piper, he writes this epic poem based off of this book. And one of the parts of this poem ends with this couplet. It says this, What we have lost, God will restore, that in himself forevermore. God will restore what has been lost. We've been promised this. What, he's been, what has been broken, what has been marred by sin, sickness, war, oppression, suffering. But in the restoring, we not only get back what we have lost, but we get God himself, which is our greatest loss that we've experienced, this separation from God and which is the greatest restoration we can experience, being brought back to a right relationship with him. That is only through Jesus Christ, and it's faith in his work on your behalf. That's what restores us to a right relationship with God. God wants to restore you. So if you've not experienced the restoration that Jesus brings, today is the day. Do not hesitate. Confess your need for him. That all of your efforts for self-improvement, for self-restoration, have proven ineffective. That Jesus is the one who restores. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, but you've maybe turned away from him in recent days, months, or even years, he wants to continue his restorative work in your life. Repent and turn back. Or maybe you are faithfully following God, but you're experiencing calamities of your own. Remember, we know how this will all end. All hope is not lost. God will prove himself faithful as he did in Daniel 8 and throughout all of history and even in your life. Remember his faithfulness and trust in his future goodness and wisdom. He is in the business of restoration. And remember, what we have lost, God will restore. That and himself forevermore. Amen.